Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Lawrence Cook of Nanopay. Nanopay is a modern payment infrastructure platform that basically allows vendors and participants in the marketplace to settle payments far more rapidly than traditional banking infrastructure. And with that, here's my interview with Lawrence. Good morning, Lawrence. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So Lawrence Cook of Nanopay, tell us about Nanopay. So Nanopay is founded in 2013, and our overall vision is to create digital cash that is fiat-backed. So instead of creating a cryptocurrency, to create a cryptocurrency for central banks based on today's fiat currency. Okay. So we're going to dive into what that means in a couple of minutes. Tell me about what uh, led you to start the company. So I used to be in telecom, and I like to say now I'm a reformed telecom guy. And I thought telecom was really good at a few things. One of them was scale. Another one of them was uh, reliability and resilience. And I don't see those in the payments ecosystem. And at the same time, <laughs> oh, you're not yeah. yeah. And I was really frustrated with how difficult it was to accept and make payments in a telecom company. And so I went to our board and I said, actually, I think payments are going to be bigger than telecom. And I was a wireless guy, so they thought I was out of my mind. So uh, no one else was interested in it. My, my starting philosophy was if we give free access to our SIM card, then every single transaction on the planet will go through our network and we can work out how to monetize it later. And their view was let's how to work out how to monetize it first and then we'll build it out. And, and my point of view was if we started that way around, then we'd have exactly zero share in 10 years' time. And that's yeah. exactly where the telcos are right now. It's exactly, you know, Facebook could charge for, for accounts from day one. They would not be the behemoth they are. It's like, it's amazing. They're putting monetization ahead of the value of the network in itself, which is such an old world way of thinking where, don't get me wrong, the entire entire let's just get these people on and monetize later sounds really broken and really messed up and very expensive but frankly once you get to a certain scale even a basis point becomes enormous amounts of money yeah you know i think both telecom and payments have changed fundamentally and in the past you had huge upfront infrastructure costs and infrastructure is getting cheaper and cheaper infrastructure always used to be hardware and now infrastructure is becoming software software was this big monolithic thing that you built in in only large organizations, and now software can be built at the speed of light um, through distributed networks and in an open source way where globally you have thousands of people contributing to your code. So I think these things have changed, and telcos and most of the providers of payments have not. No, they've not. And that's interesting. I, you know, the online world's difficult enough, but I just came back from, uh, from the U.S. And I find that trying to pay with a credit card is almost like a game of roulette down there. Like, I basically never know if I'm going to be asked for chip, if I can use chip, pin, touch, or swipe, or if I'm going to be needed, or if I'm going to require a signature or not, or it's just, it is, I swear, every place was a different experience. And even using Apple Pay, where I'm then asked to sign after using Apple Pay, I'm just like, I don't understand what's going on here, right? Like, it's, it's bizarre, and it's, it's so fragmented and so broken. And, you know, when we get into the online world, it's even, it's even more so that way. It's, you know, the, the thought that, I can right now jump on my phone and order something from Amazon that will arrive today, yet I can't get a payment to some so to someone in less than several days. It's just astonishing. Yeah, you know, uh, we often say that we think payments are broken and we think payments are broken because they're slow, they're not traceable. And uh, I think most importantly, they are dataless. And I think the dataless component of it is a bigger cost to society than, than we realize. The Department of Finance did some research into this, 
And they say that there's about $30 billion a year in Canada in payment friction. And they attribute $7 billion of that to just the reconciliation of accounts um, to bank statements. I mean, that's extraordinary. And we have the solutions currently that can solve this. It's just a matter of proper implementation and, and widespread implementation of all these things. It's and oh, payment friction, thirty billion dollars. I mean, then that's that's just the legal aspects of it. When you start start thinking about the amount of proper tracking of this stuff and the ability to to deal with fraud and anti terror and anti money laundering issues, like it's just it goes the cost of society of the anonymity of all this is just enormous. I think the cost of society is huge, and Bank of Australia and uh, which sorry, the Reserve Bank of Australia and others have done research into this and the. Cost cost of cash is also really high. So uh, we've got so much payment friction. The worst of it is that the poorest people land up paying the most for basic services. And if you look at that at the global scale, the poorest 2 billion people pay about 10% of their total income just to receive money. And, you know, that's stealing from the poorest people. And it's, it's just an awful thing. So our ambition as a company is to make lots of money out of the richest people and give away free payments to the poorest people in the world. So let's go back to what you started off by saying. This is a fiat-backed transaction system. So if we've seen a number of current of crypto-backed transactions platforms, or just at least ones that are using it to basically just transact from one country to another, then back into fiat. Tell me how your system works and how it's different. So maybe if I take a step back and I just look at all of the innovations in payments, because there've been a lot of innovations in payments over the last five years or so. I think the first thing that I'd say is most of the innovations in payment have been in the user experience or in the user interface. And very little of the innovation has actually happened in the underlying rails, in focusing on the underlying real issues of liquidity, security, AML, KYC, onboarding. So we're focused on those other things. So we're trying to provide infrastructure where literally thousands of companies can build on our infrastructure to transform the overall experience. But for you to be able to have a a traceable payment and a data-rich payment and a fast payment and a secure payment, you need new infrastructure. And so the legacy infrastructure just cannot deliver that as as is. So that's why we start off by building this core uh, platform that is blockchain-like because it does have aspects of blockchain, but it's not distributed. So it's a centralized blockchain technology to be able to deliver this. So what it is, and it can be used to create a cryptocurrency if you really wanted, but we're focused on working with central banks and banks because we don't believe that we want to replace a bank. We just want to make banks better. And the reason we don't want to replace banks is because banks have the special license to be able to create money out of thin air. And our economies need that. For every dollar in a bank, there's $10 of liquidity out there. And we are not in that business, and we're not in the business of lending. We just want payments to work better. So if we can work with banks and with central banks to make payments better, we've achieved our end goal. So what we've built is an infrastructure that allows this to happen in a much more effective and much more efficient way. So I'll give you some numbers so you can attach this to uh, attach it to it in terms of scalability and resilience. So we built a platform that today can do 60,000 transactions per second on a laptop. <laughs> and if, yeah, so if we compare that with infrastructure that's in place, Visa and MasterCard combined with billions of dollars of infrastructure cannot do 50,000 transactions per second. 
faster payments in the UK, where they invested a billion pounds in the infrastructure and many more in the software, can only do 2,500 transactions per second. So if you compare our infrastructure and our transactions per second, and we're doing data-rich payments with any of those infrastructures, our infrastructure on a cost per transaction per second is close to 100,000 times cheaper. So how do you compete with 100,000 times cheaper? <laughs> yeah, no, that's um, <laughs> that's a very compelling point. So what is the secret sauce that's basically leading you guys to be able to essentially crush the competition on, on transaction times? I think a few things. Firstly, most of the innovation, as I said, has happened on the front end and the user experience rather than in the core underlying uh, architecture. We really focused on that and we wanted something that could be uh, scalable and resilient from the, from the start. And so most of our engineers come from a telecom background. And if we just compare that, I mean, you, you already spoke about your poor experiences and it's always different in credit cards, but also they get declined. And you travel somewhere and they phone you and they stop your card and then you have to phone and say, oh no, it's okay, I am traveling to Greece and you can uh, now release my credit card. Canadian issued credit card would not be accepted in various places. It was, it was frustrating. Yeah, and then also the infrastructure goes down. I can't tell you how many times I just log into my bank account and it says you can't do anything for now because there's system maintenance or something like that. Well, we've got engineers here in our office that built E911. Do you know how many times E911 has gone down? <laughs> I, I hope zero. <laughs> zero. It has not been down for one second. And not only is there no unplanned uh, downtime, there's also no planned downtime. It is literally changing and it's always changing and always growing and always improving, but it's never ever been down and there's no plan for it ever to be down, not for one second ever. So we're using that mindset for payments because ultimately payments should work 100% of the time. If there's value there, you should be able to transfer it. It should be as effective as cash, but in a digital format. And all cash transactions work, and we should make sure that all electronic transactions work all the time. Agreed, especially if we're going to convince people to abandon their cash transactions. I mean, the often the, the big complaint I hear is like simply like, okay, well, what happens if the power goes down, right? Well, well the thing is, is in reality now, when we're dealing with mobile devices everywhere and businesses, many of them using iPads for point of sale, frankly, if the power goes down, as long as you have a seller to connection, there's no excuse for not being able to take in a payment, right? At least that's the world we yeah. should be living on versus the world we currently live. So thus far, your market is, again, established players, B2B play, it's a B2B play, really. What's the reception been thus far from, um, from what they're seeing? Yeah, you know, so I think the reception has been incredible. We are not out there trying to get one business at a time, although if you did want to use our platform, you can sign up online through our SaaS platform, which is, which is Ably. But we mainly focused on building solutions for banks and for accounting firms, and we're selling them a white label solution. So you might be using our platform and not even know it. But at the core of this, we want data rich, we want speed, we want security, traceability. I mean, we say it's absurd that you can send a wire and not know where it is for days on end. And that can be a $16 million wire, but you know where your pizza is, which is only 16 bucks to the second. <laughs> yep. Right? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, Domino's is more efficient than the actual banking system of the world, which is just frightening when you think about that. And I, I, you know, speak from experience, I just basically paid for an Airbnb through PayPal. And, you know, it's like, well, we'll let you know when this is cleared. Thanks. Like, 
like seriously, this is the world I live in. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, exactly. there's, a of, there's a lot of competition in this space in terms of payments. I see payments companies popping up everywhere, and I get why. Like, I mean, we're talking about there is nothing that scales more than payments. I mean, the the, the number of tra- dollars transacted in the world, and I've stated on the show before, is just utterly mind-boggling. So lots of competition. How are you differentiating versus what the other plays out there are looking at doing? Yeah, so I think a few things. The first thing is we are not trying to build a consumer base. We are not a a consumer proposition. And we're not even trying to get businesses one at a time because that is not the space we're in. And we are providing, I think, a very good use interface and a compelling interface. But at the end of the day, we are infrastructure. So we want to be the guts behind all of these guys. And if we can provide a platform where everyone can innovate on top of the platform, then there should be lots and lots of retail solutions, whether it's retail for small businesses. And when I say retail, it's aimed directly going to market. So we want to be the infrastructure in the background, providing that so that we've got a, a platform for innovation for the whole industry. And I think in Canada, this is a, a matter of national competitiveness, because I think you need two things to be a competitive business in this modern the world is flat world. And that the first thing is good telecom infrastructure. And I do believe we've got good telecom infrastructure in Canada. It's expensive, but it's good infrastructure. And then the second thing is a good and thriving innovative payments ecosystem. And we do not have that. We are years behind. Asia is miles ahead of us. There are parts of Africa that are ahead of us. I mean, the mobile payments in Africa are extraordinary. They're expensive, but they work and they're ubiquitous. And here we're using old-fashioned paper-based platforms that we have slowly automated and made electronic. And it's just a terrible experience. It's bad for liquidity. It's bad for cash management. It's bad for cash flow. It's bad for business. And we cannot compete uh, compete at a global scale unless we fix this. So we want to provide an infrastructure in Canada and in other countries where you can build on top of that infrastructure to give the best possible experience. Yeah, I mean the the success of Alipay and via WeChat in, in Asia is just staggering. I mean, I teach on occasion and one of my Chinese students came to me and was just like, you know, I've only been here for a little while, but can you tell me why the payment system here sucks so badly? And I was just like, I was like, well, how much time do you have? And she's like, well, you know, like she pulls out her phone. She's like, look, I just sent this while you were talking. Like, and she pulled, and like, that was WeChat, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, you're a little bit ahead, <laughs> which is ironic. And, you know, you look at that plus like the, you know, M-Pesa and, and Kenya and Tanzania, like the, you know, it's almost, it's almost shameful how far it is. No, it is absolutely shameful how far behind we are. And frankly, so back to your platform. So essentially what you're really looking to do is almost, for lack of a better term, become an AWS payments. You want to be sitting in the background, providing the platform that's going to do all this stuff. And at the same time, you're allowing people to build over top of you, utilizing, leveraging your APIs to build their own custom interfaces. So again, you know, NanoPay is not a name that you're ever going to the consumers are going to come to click on a NanoPay app, but if I'm, you know, trying to transfer money using, you know, if someone wants to take a crack at creating another Venmo for Canada, which already was tried and failed, then they could technically use you as a backend service provider. Exactly, and you know, internally we talk about building the operating system for money, and you know, I think ultimately that opportunity is right here and right now. I think like Libra and other cryptocurrencies have really put the central banks on notice that if they don't do something that they're going to lose the sovereignty of their underlying currency. So to protect that, the best thing they can possibly do is digitize the existing currencies. And there's only one platform on the planet 
that has the scale and uh, resilience to be able to do that, and that's our platform. As a bold claim that uh, I have no doubt you're backing up, but yep, I mean, I've had to answer several questions and commentaries on Libra in the last little while, and it's, you know, as far as I say, well, first of all, is the entire, do I trust Facebook with my money entire issue, which is, is, which is a different conversation altogether, but the entire challenging of established uh, currency authorities on a multinational scale is truly an interesting dynamic to this and, and seeing just how, you know, putting them on notice is exactly what happened. I think every central bank and every major bank basically when this became fully public and when it was actually was still being rumored, they had to have some serious conversations at some very executive level saying, what are we going to do? Because frankly, if, if this is real and this, this gains scale, we have a real problem on our hands. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing for us is we're a technology company and Libra could use our technology to deliver their platform. In fact, they think they'll have a thousand transactions per second a year from now and we can give them hundreds of thousands of transactions per second right now. So they'd be crazy to go and build it themselves anyway. But really, our market that we focused on is, is central banks and any central bank can compete on price performance with something like Libra right now by using our platform. And banks can use our platform right now to give their end customers, which we mainly focused on the business market. So a payment capability, an accounts receivable and accounts payable solution that integrates within their accounting platforms, but also cash and liquidity management, where today this is very rudimentary. I think in Canada, we need open banking. In Canada, we need, uh, we need access to the rails. In Canada, we need payment initiation. If we have those things and a modern set of rails, we can compete globally. Without those, we cannot compete. I'll add your name to the list of people who have complained about the need for open banking on this podcast. And I, too, am a big believer in it. And uh, unfortunately, the banks are going to kick and scream and keep it as prevent us from getting there for as long as possible. But yeah, it is shameful to, to the degree that we have not evolved those. Uh, we've not moved to that level yet. So let's go back to the entire Libra statement. So at the end of the day, you're agnostic to fiat currency, but it sounds like you're also agnostic to crypto. Is that the case? Yeah, so we don't do anything in crypto today, but if, if Facebook wanted to buy the best platform in the planet, we the guys that have uh, already have it available today. So that's not a conversation that we've had, but we could easily deliver it. <laughs> Just send them, <laughs> send anyone you know on Facebook a copy of this podcast and see where you're in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't intend it that way. I was just. Uh, I was just saying we we've built infrastructure that has resilience and scale that no one else has. Fair enough. But uh, well, let's just say I do have quite a lot of listeners in the valley. So we'll see what comes of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, in general, though, I mean, so this is essentially. Is this thing? I almost feel like this thing is sort of done. I mean, like you built the backend engine that's going to be able to support all this. At its core, your product is is finished, is it not? Like, I mean, from here, all you're doing is building functionality and greater, you know, to be greater evolving needs. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, we do still have some work to do, and I don't think we're ever going to rest when it comes to things like cybersecurity. So that's an ongoing uh, requirement, and you always have to be investing in this to stay ahead of the pack. I think the second thing is that we always want to make sure that it's becoming more and more scalable. So we're not going to stop with where we're at right now. We think we'll eventually get to many hundreds of thousands transactions per second per server. So we, we want to get there. And then on the resilient side, when money is important, it can't ever fail. So I don't think that's anything where we ever want to rest on our laurels and say our job is done. Also, we're at a point where we built some initial interfaces 
and we want to get to a point where we've open sourced all of the uh, user interfaces so that other people can start to either use our SDK or our APIs or take our existing open source code and, and develop on top of that. So, you know, we want to create a whole community of people working on this. We have an unusual framework, which gives us the scale and gives us the speed and gives us the resilience. But not everyone has to be familiar with that to benefit from the open source uh, user interfaces. I mean, software is never done, but you're extending, you know, you're, you're at a level where you're more than ready. You know, it's, it's more than ready for showtime. You've done that. Compounding on your lead, of course, is something you have to do. So one of the other uh, points to mention here is that I noticed that you allow for both on-premise and cloud deployment, which in the financial services space, I would think would have to be, I mean, on, they're just, most of them are just not ready to go cloud fully. What's been, I'm curious, what's been the split thus far? How much, uh, is, how popular has each option been? Yeah, so at the moment, the vast majority of our stuff is in the cloud. And the reason for that is whether it's our cloud or their cloud, it's a much easier and faster place to innovate. But we do have liquidity and cash management solutions that are much more appropriate to be on-premise. So, you know, if you're managing liquidity of a large global bank and they're moving hundreds of billions of dollars a day, it doesn't make sense for that to be sitting in the cloud somewhere. So that gets installed on-premise, and with that, it comes their own set of requirements on resilience and that sort of thing. So resilience is built into our ecosystem, but also banks take that to a whole new level by putting it in all of their infrastructure. Also, banks don't want us touching any of their core uh, core systems, so we're pretty much giving them the software and letting them uh, deal with it from there. So, you know, I think there are use cases when it comes to a small business, there's no sense of putting anything on premise. Everything should be in the cloud. But when it comes to cash and liquidity management and hundreds of billions of dollars, that should be on premise and it, it probably will be on premise for a while. And even when it goes into the cloud, it will be their cloud, not our cloud. Yeah, or yeah, some sort of uh, subcontract dedicated data service. No, absolutely. Security is one thing in this space that cannot be understated, and the need for it cannot be understated. Anyway, so uh, thoroughly impressive. And uh, frankly, I sincerely hope that you, you gain scale because, my goodness, uh, it would make my life less frustrating. So, a couple of questions for you before we wrap up. The first question for you is if you had one wish for something to change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? If I had one wish for change. So, in the United States, when everyone moved west, uh, they sent the cowboys uh, out there first, and they were followed by uh, sheriffs and the law enforcement afterwards. In Canada, when we went out west, we sent the RCMP first. And if for some reason in Canada, we think we need permission to innovate. So in Canada, the one thing I'd like to change is this crazy idea that we need permission to innovate. We should have sandboxes and the ability for our companies to innovate ahead of the regulation, and the regulation should play catch-up. Right now, every single bank and every single regulator thinks everything's got to be regulated and you can't do anything without permission first. And permission can take years. So that's why we're behind on innovation. So we've got to get away from this crazy mindset that we cannot innovate without permission. Yeah, I mean, the uh, you know, there's definitely something said about the move fast and break bleep, you know, attitude. But you're absolutely right. The number of conversations I hear and before they even start, simply because they're like, well, you know, it's never going to happen. It's like, well, I you don't understand the nature of, of regulation and governments if you're thinking that way, right? Like they, you can go and talk to them about this lofty idea, and they just can't wrap their heads around it. You build it and show it, then they have something to contemplate. You prove a market, then they have something to look at, right? And then you have leverage, as opposed to basically going and asking for permission as opposed to forgiveness. Agreed. And look, I'm not saying we should do anything, we should ever do anything that's bad for consumers or bad for the stability of our banking system or our ecosystem. But often we use those as a crutch 
and an excuse not to innovate. And I think that's unacceptable. If we want to have a Canadian dollar 20 years from now, we have to innovate. Otherwise, our currency will be Libra or US dollars or, or Euros. It'll be someone else's currency, a made up currency. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the reason the U.S. dollars accepted it just about everywhere is because people trust it. And, you know, the, the fric- you know that's, that's a point of friction. Trust is a point of friction, right? And so you think about that one dynamic, which is solely trust of stability, has become, has made it the kind of global currency. When we get, what about the other points of friction that are going to lead to us choosing other currencies to transact in, right? I mean, that's part of the entire promise of the entire blockchain of, of, of all cryptos is that, you know what, uh, this is a faster, better, easier way to transact. And look at the adoption rates just based off that. So so next question for you, what has been the biggest challenge in getting your company to where it is today? What has been our biggest challenge? So, um, you know, I think the challenge for us is we want to move really quickly, but ultimately we're moving people's money. So we often have technology ready that we could get in market right now, and we spend months delaying it over either regulatory issues, or we spend months delaying it, checking it and double checking and triple checking it. And You know, I think our biggest issue is we want to go faster and faster, but we're constantly held back because this is people's uh, this is people's money. And we just don't have an environment here in this marketplace that allows us to be successful in the short term. So most of our opportunities are outside of Canada. So our biggest frustration um, and our biggest holding the thing back is is Canada. We've got our fundraising abroad. Most of our clients are abroad. Most of our innovation is abroad. And it's so sad that we cannot do anything here at home. That is utterly frustrating to hear. I mean, it's I, on some level, I get it. I mean, at the end of the day, you're dealing with politicians, regulators, and well, basically those two those two levels, right? And, and really, these are traditionally non-tech literate field people and traditionally designed to by design slow things down and actually in the last the last group being the executives at, at major banks right you know no executive at a major bank ever got made ceo because he took these outlandish chances right it's all about still slow and steady right so i and then largely because of our large oligopoly in this country but it's utterly heartbreaking for me to hear innovative canadian companies saying hey we had an easier time raising money elsewhere and an easier time selling outside of our home country because of the sheer dynamic dynamics of the bureaucracy and the lack of, of expedited vision. I mean, the I had a great conversation with a, um, with a VC the other day about the frustrations experienced by, by fintechs trying to sell into the Canadian banking system. And they said, you know, flat out, the number of companies we've invested in that have pivoted away from financial services with their solution because of the sales cycles taking so bloody long and the vendor cycles taking so long that it's astonishing. And you hear that, it's like, so let me get this straight, all these wonderful ideas, all these wonderful products are being thrown at you and you basically cannot get organized enough to implement them to the point where these people are so frustrated they'll move on to believe it or not healthcare for faster adoptions in some cases which is just astonishing so uh, frustrating we we definitely need change in the way we handle these things and if we don't we're going to get our our butts handed to us globally the last question is what excites you the most about what you're working on or what it is you're doing and what gets you up every morning to continue on fighting the good fight Yeah, we are passionate about making a difference at a a global scale. And so every morning I I wake up excited and challenged to try and take this business uh, globally. There are not many Canadian companies that are global, but I think we can uh, can achieve that. So, you know, I think we've really got the scale. We've We've got amazing people here in Canada in terms of our team and that. So super excited about that and our challenge is to make this a global organization. So every day we want to make a difference. We want to make every payment faster, cheaper, more data rich 
and yeah, I just I want to be able to create a platform globally where people can innovate on that. And if we can get the infrastructure right, we can have thousands of entrepreneurs around the world innovating in their marketplaces, delivering the best solutions for their marketplaces in their countries in their currencies. Fantastic. Well, this has been great. Uh, and, you know, I always what I, what I always joke about with this uh, with this podcast is that some of the most the things that you would think would not be that interesting to the general public end up being some of the most interesting conversations. So uh, payment transactions, KYC, AML, like I often wonder, I enter these conversations wondering just how interesting it's going to get, but you certainly delivered. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for your time. So that was my interview with Lawrence Cook of Nanopath. He's working on some great stuff, and hopefully we will start to see payments settle a lot faster in our everyday lives than we're currently seeing them. So hope he keeps it up. With that, as always, I'm Jason Perrin. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.